the truth of the matter is, that just like a farmer, he has to prepare before the harvest. My brother-in-law, Bruce, is a farmer. I don't know how many acres he's farming now, somewhere over 3,000 acres. And when it comes time to harvest, he don't just say, okay, guys, it's time to harvest, let's just go. But he prepares. He gets his tractors ready. He gets his equipment ready. He gets his combine ready. He gets his truck ready. He gets his bins ready. He gets the field ready. There's a lot of preparation that goes in in getting that grain out of the field. Even so, it is our responsibility to labor with purpose and intention and make the necessary preparations for the harvest that God is about to send us. If we do not prepare, God cannot sin. Can I have an amen? You and I got to get ready for the event that is at play. Folks, we're at the reaping of the greatest harvest in the world, and we have to be ready if we're going to be a part of those that receive that which is to come in. Christians who are really perfected in love are people who are grateful for their salvation. I am so grateful for my salvation. I look back and say, why me, God? Why did you pick on me? Why, 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 why did you ever see in me that was anything? Why did you reach out to me? I want to tell you, God got aggressive with me in order to get me saved. He chased me down. He hounded me. I was a backslidden boy. I got saved at the age of seven, got out of church about the age of 11, and through those young teenage years up until about 18 years old, 17 years old, I ran from the Lord hard. But you know what? The further I ran, the more he chased me. And he would hound me and he would convict me and he would talk to me. And I want to tell you, I'm thankful for my salvation here today. Thank God for the grace of God that saved me. Can I have an amen? Is anybody else thankful for their salvation? Would you just give God praise for your salvation today? Hallelujah. Let's not take it for granted. Do you remember when he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Oh, what a glorious thing that was. You know, the people that love the Lord, they can't help but want to share their testimony in the gospel with other people. We must be a church whose compassion is to labor with Christ and to build a soul-winning church where the lost are saved. If all we're going to do is gather here and have entertainment, I don't want to be a part of it. I'm being honest. If all we're going to do is come in here and love on each other and just forsake the world, that's not the call. That's not the mission. That's not the heartbeat of God. That's not the perspective of God. Can I have an amen? We miss God altogether if the harvest is not continually in our brain and in our heart. This parable of the wedding came on the hills of Jesus healing a man that had attended the meeting that had a dropsy. And Jesus perceived and already knew how that the Pharisees felt about healing on the Sabbath day. However, Jesus just simply asked them before he ever even healed, here he is in their house. And he says, hey, is it lawful? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And the Bible says they did not open their mouth, which is unusual. And then the Bible says he took the man by the hand, lifted him up and healed him right there in front of them. And they actually set Jesus up to entrap him because they knew if there was a man or if there was a woman with an illness that Jesus just could not help but minister to him. And so they brought him on purpose so that he might heal him on the Sabbath day to where they could accuse him of breaking the law and bring condemnation to his life. The Pharisees done this on purpose. And can you imagine that? Here they are and they knew, man, if there is somebody with a problem in the presence of Jesus, Jesus can't help himself but to minister. And I thank God that if we're gonna be like Jesus, that when there's a need that is presented, we can't help ourselves but get involved. 
You and I cannot help ourselves but try to reach out and to help somebody else. Thank God that there were people that reached out to me and thank God there were people that reached out to you or you and I would not be sitting where we are standing where we are at today. But before they could even argue their case, Jesus never even gave them a chance to speak after he healed because he knew what they were going to do. But he says, which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out of the, on the Sabbath day? In other words, Jesus was saying the oxen or the donkey, which were the tools of instruments of harvest, were more important to them than the man himself that had the dropsy. They were more important than the harvest themselves. He was saying that the tools that represented their livelihood, those things that made them a living, was more important than the soul of that man that was sick or that, was, that had the dropsy. The natural became more important to them than the spiritual, and the temporal became more important to them than the eternal. They were worldly-minded, carnally-minded, instead of having a spiritual mind. They minded the things of men, the things of the earth, the things of the world more than the things of the Lord. Here was these important doctors of the law, the chief Pharisees, those of noble degree, the most social prominent, who were all experts of the law, yet they were not kingdom-minded. God help us, churched but not changed, religious but not righteous. And I thought, oh God, don't let the palace of praise be like, don't let me be like that. Churched but not changed, religious but not righteous. Don't let me have all this knowledge but don't know how to rightly apply it. Come on, somebody. Don't me let me just be indoctrinated, but God, let me have the perspective of God. Let me have the heart. Let me have the heart of God. Let me understand the great commission and the implication of it. Jesus' parable was designed to teach them that the, the protocol of the house is not near and as important as the presence of the house. Can I tell you, yes, we got systems that we operate in. We have an arrangement. We have an order. We have a protocol about our services. But I want to tell you, that ain't near as important as the presence in the house. Can I have an Amen. We can't get so wrapped up in what we do that we forget who and what we're doing it for and what we're doing it about. Can I have an amen? Yes, I want order. Yes, I want all of that stuff, but not at the cost of the presence of the Holy Spirit. God, help me preach. Holy Ghost, I'm so heavy about this. While the Pharisees were all about the tidiness of the house, the order of the house, they were all about image. They were all about the look of the house. Everything they had, everything had to be proper and neat and in its place. Everyone had to have their proper attire on and be well-groomed and polished and presentable before God. They wasn't really welcome. I've seen churches where people come in the other day, someone told me, that they had walked into a church and they didn't have a lot of money and they had some holes in their jeans and stuff, but they tried to make themselves as presentable as possible. They attended our church and they wondered, are they gonna be accepted here in this big, nice, beautiful building? But they had went to a church prior to that and after the service, some of the members came to them and said, look, we're glad that you're here, but next week, when, if you come, you need to be more presentable or don't come. I thought, oh my God, what's happened to us? that we think because someone comes in 
that has a little less than we do or maybe they're not quite quite uh, got the, the goods that we have or the, or the ability to buy the suits, the ties or whatever, that, they're, that, you know, that they don't belong with us because of image sake or you know, we're righteous people and we can't, we can't allow nothing to come in and defame us. I wanna tell you something, folks. If anything like that happened, you're gonna have me on your head. Let all that wanna come, the lame, the blind, the halt, the sick, the poor, let them come in. God, help me preach. I'm so heavy I can't even hardly preach. A scripture came back to my mind that I preached several years ago out of Proverbs 14 and 4, where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increases by the strength of the oxen. The oxen is a harvest animal. And here, the writer of Proverbs is asking, do you want a clean house or do you want a field house? I'm gonna ask you today, do you want a clean house or do you want a field house? Sometimes we get so upset because something's out of place. Somebody got in my cabinet and got my pencils and we'll put a big lock on it, leave alone. We'll go by, have you seen that room? It's a disgrace. Someone's colored all over the walls. Did you see that big spill? When are you gonna quit letting people bring food into the church? Did you see that big spill over there in the, in the hall, on the carpet? Wow, it's getting quiet in here. I think I'll just leave that alone because I'm telling you, it's binding this thing up. But do we want a clean house or do we want a full house? Folks, can I tell you that the harvest can be messy? It's a messy business. Things get messy and dirty. They get mispositioned and cluttered. Things get out of order when you deal with people that are not saved. Can I have an amen? If you have a barn that serves the harvest, I want to tell you something. You're going to do some messy work. You're going to shovel some manure because them ox poop. Can I have an amen? You're going to get your hands dirty if you're going to be involved in the harvest. These Pharisees were a group of people that did not understand mercy, grace, forgiveness, and long-suffering. They were a people that only reached out to the people like themselves, but they dare never, dare never go after the defiled or the underprivileged because it may cramp their style. They were all about position, power, image, and authority. Look at what Jesus said to them in Luke 14 of our text. This is where our text begins. He starts with verse 12 and says, when thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again and recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed. You want to be blessed? Everybody wants to be blessed around an altar. This is how he's telling you how you can be blessed. For they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Here's what the Lord says. If you really want to be blessed, when you have a dinner, don't call your neighbors, don't call your friends, don't call your family. He says, go out and get those that are less fortunate, those that are maimed and blind. He says, go after the sinner. Bring them into your house and feed them. He said, if you go get your family, you're gonna be recompensed because your family's gonna have you back over to their house and they're gonna repay you. And, and this is what he's literally saying. That's the only reward you're really gonna get. But he says, when you go out and you get the, bl the blind, the maimed, the lame and all that, and you feed them, they cannot pay you back. And you know what he says? You're going to be rewarded at the resurrection. You're laying up treasures in heaven. Can I have a, that's the true heartbeat of God. But after Jesus teaches them this, they still don't get it. 
One of the Pharisees stands up and says, oh, blessed are we gonna be when we're able to eat bread in your kingdom. They go right back to this thought about, again, about being able to sit with him and eat bread in his kingdom. They were all, their mind was about was position and title and image and authority. The video that I showed you right before my sermon was a video of a woman by the name of Margaret Gaines. When Margaret was a young girl, she felt the call to be a missionary. So at as a young age, at 19 years old, she had begun to embark on her journey or try to endeavor to obey the Lord. So she went to the uh, Church of God World Missions Board and she asked them to appoint her in a mission field and told them where she was feeling like the Lord wanted her to go. Margaret was declined by the Church of God World Missions Board because this is what they said. It was too dangerous for a pretty, single, 19-year-old girl to go to Tunisia, Africa, where she felt to go, go on her own. They said, it's just too dangerous. You don't understand the culture. You're too young. You're too beautiful. You won't last there. You can't be effective there. You, you, know, you could be kidnapped. You could be raped. You could die, and the list goes on and on and on. Margaret, however, felt the call to go anyway, and she went home and she prayed about it, and she began to say, I, the Lord spoke to her and said, go anyway without the appointment of the Church of God Mission Board. She went and raised $100, got an airplane ticket, and she took off. Can you imagine the faith that took a 19-year-old girl getting on a plane, flying to Africa by herself just because she felt a call of God to go? When she gets there, I don't know the whole story. It's a long, long story, but she begins to immediately have success. And because of her diligence and faithfulness, after several years, the Church of God recognized what in the world she was doing, and guess what? they began to give her a missionary appointment status in 1956. They looked at her and said, wow, she is real. She is authentic. She is blowing it out of the water. So they made her a missionary. She was there 10 years in Africa, and because of health problems, they had to fly her to France. There she planted churches, assisted missionaries, taught wherever she could, do, what she could done whatever she could do. Then in 1964, she responded to the need in Jerusalem and was appointed as a missionary to Israel. She ended up traveling all around Israel, teaching children, doing Bible studies, teaching in schools, all around the Jordan area. She planted churches all over the place and become a pastor of one of those churches in Israel. Started a school there, you've seen it on the, on, on the video, a big school that's still there today. However, for 24 years, I was in a class when she taught this, me and Chuck Lambert, and she said that she was despised by the Jewish people. They persecuted her, called her names. They had nothing to do with her, and they just done everything you know that goes along with that, the ridicule, the rejection, the, the smart remarks, and you know, the avoiding her, isolating her, throwing things at her, cussing her, and all that kind of a thing. And then one day, Margaret was in a village outside of the grocery store there, and a man accosted her. He cursed the grave of her father. He cursed the grave of her mother. He cursed the grave of her grandparents. He cursed her God. He cursed the God of her parents. And everything he could think to curse, he cursed. Margaret said she could feel that everybody in that entire village was looking at her. As she hurled, as he hurled this abuse upon her, she quickly began to pray, God, help me to know how to respond. And then all of a sudden, when he finally got done, here's how Margaret responded. I am so sorry I hurt you. I never had any intention of hurting you. God loves you and I love you. His, he loves this village and he wants to bless you. And when you get over being mad, would you please remember I'm still your friend. This man became perplexed. In shame, he turned and he walked away. 
Margaret said, Satan does not know how to respond to the gentleness of God's spirit. The very people that would not have anything to do with her are come to her church. They watched her response that day. Outside of that grocery store that day became the start of her pulpit. And it was that day after years and years and years and years of trying to get the, uh, the Jewish community to accept her, it finally happened. One man and was standing there and tears began to flow down his eyes and he looked at his little children and said, for years that woman's lived in our village. We've avoided her, we've cussed her, we've persecuted her, we've done everything in the world to try to stop her and yet look at just what happened and yet she responds like that something's gotta be real about her God. And he got his family and went to talk to her and that family got saved. The end result is that she lived there until the day of her retirement. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people have come to know Jesus Christ as a result of a woman by the name of Margaret Gaines. Can you give the Lord praise? Schools are built all over Israel. Churches are built all over Israel. All because of one little 19-year-old girl that heard the call of God, decided to go, and she obeyed the presence of God. She never married. She never had children. She gave her whole life to the cause of Jesus Christ. Whatever we've done is so short of what she has done. What was her attitude the whole time waiting for the breakthrough of her success? A lot of times we'll take something and something don't happen right now. Within three months, we're ready to abort it and walk away from it. We like the hot stuff. Haven't you ever seen that in Pentecost? Something hot, everybody flocks to it. Everybody wants to be a part of it. But no one wants to be a part of the trenches. No one wants to be a part of pulling something out. They wanna, their ministry, you know what it's like? Get something going for me when you get tired of it. I'll take it over. Can I have an amen? But what was her attitude for all those years of service and nothing? No gratitude, just smart remarks. No kindness, persecution. You wouldn't believe the things they'd done to that poor woman. I don't have time to go into some of them. Just list and list of things of the torment they put her through. This is what she said. Whatever we're doing, it's a part of the whole because if you can imagine a purpose and if you can outline it and you can set it before you as you go, it's too small for our God. His plan won't fit into our little brain. We can have some self-help stuff and we can do stuff with brawn and brave determination, but it's too small for our God if we want to have his plan. We just simply don't ask. She said, I was the architect. I, she said, I wasn't the architect. I wasn't the contractor in my life. I was just a day worker. A day worker doesn't know what he's building. A day worker doesn't have to understand the plan. He doesn't have to know or how it fits into the plan of God. The only thing I ever did was to love God and obey him one day at a time. She said, this is not our life. This is our opportunity to honor him. Let's waste this life for him. Give it up, let him burn us up. Burn us out, pour us out. Let us be trampled on, let us be consumed. Use us up, oh God provided that you get the glory. And then when everything is settled, when we can live life eternally in heaven with no, nothing missing and no regrets. Can I tell you, when I get to thinking about what that woman just said, I got to thinking, oh my goodness. She said, I don't have to understand when I wake up because nothing's happening the way I think it should happen. All I know, I was called to God, I was a day worker. And she said, if I was to ask God what his plan was, his plan's too big, I couldn't understand it anyway. 
So all I know is his perspective was just to be obedient to him and trust him. So every day I work not knowing what actually I was building. I just lived by faith. I just simply got up and said, you know, today don't look like there was anything significant happened, but it's a part of the whole. It's a part of the plan. The steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. The steps of a good man are ordained of God. And when nothing seems to be happening, I'm still a part of God's plan. He's working something far out more greater than what I can ever even imagine. I just got to be patient and long-suffering, wait for it to come to pass. I'm just going to endure hardness as a good soldier. I'm not backing up. I'm not falling down just because nothing seems to happen. I give out good. I receive bad. I, I, I give out gifts. I don't receive anything in return. I do everything I know to do. I don't get anything for the work of my service, but ridicule and persecution. They lock my gates. They, they burn my yards. They lock me in my house. They, they, do, they throw rocks through my windows. They do everything. They despise me, but it doesn't really matter because it's a part of the whole. It's a part of the plan. If not, God wouldn't allow it to happen. This is just what it is. I'm just a day worker. I don't have to understand how all that fits in. And she kept working and she kept laboring. And what did she do? She's made one of the greatest impacts that there is upon the nation of Israel for the cause of Jesus Christ. Amen. Some scholars say that the parable of the wedding that Jesus used was used as a metaphor of the wedding supper of the Lamb where we're all called up to heaven to be married to Jesus Christ as his bride. This parable through symbolic action shows us the role the Jewish people were to take by perpetuating the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. However, the Jewish people was too focused on their own agenda and all that was on their mind was their title, their position, their image, their, their authority and what they could receive. All they could think about was what was represented in James and John, the sons of Zebedee's mother, when she asked this question in Mark 20, 21. This saith unto him, she says unto Jesus, grant thyself these, my two sons, may sit one at your right hand and the other on your left hand in your kingdom. And then Jesus responds, said, do you know what you're asking for? Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? In other words, and she immediately says, yes, I'm able to drink the cup that you can drink of and I'm able to be baptized in the baptism. She didn't know what she was saying. Even Jesus himself said, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine be done. Jesus even struggled accepting that cup of suffering. And this is what Jesus was saying. Are you willing to suffer with me? Are you willing to take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me? Are you willing to be baptized unto death, dying to yourself and baptized in the spirit? Are you willing to be witnesses unto me unto death? Are you willing to be a martyr for me? Are you willing to be a Margaret Gaines, emptying yourself out, letting me consume you, use you up? Are you willing to lay down your life for my purpose? Are you willing to lay down your thoughts, your entitlement, your position, your image, your authority? Are you able to to forget about your agenda and pursue my agenda. That's what God's asking. Then listen to what Jesus said in verse 23. To sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them in whom it is prepared of my Father. Then out of nowhere, Jesus gives this parable of the great supper of our text, which is a metaphor of the marriage supper of the Lamb banquet reception. Here we see that there was plans for a great supper being prepared. And we see that the master of the house sent the servants out to bid them to come to the master's invitation, giving them, giving the chosen, he gave them a list. But those who were chosen representing Israel 
one by one began to make excuses. The first one said, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. Pay, pray thee, have me excused. The piece of ground represents the cares of this life, having a chunk of the world. The second one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. This represents our work, our career, our jobs, our busyness, our business. I think we all know what it's like to try to run a business. It's very hard in these days and times, but you can't allow your business and your careers and your jobs get in the way of your servitude to Jesus Christ. And the third one said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. This represents relationships, social life, families and friends. You know, all the time I hear people constantly, I went to church because I was over here. We had family over here. Well, we had this family event. Well, my daughter over here. And they're chasing their family all the time because their relationships get in the way of serving the number one relationship between them and God. Notice how they all had one element in their excuse, though their excuse were for different reasons. The element that they all had in common was, we don't have the time. We say that a lot about the things that really don't mean anything to us, but in reality, we always will do what we have passion for. Whatever is in our heart, we will find time to do it, and we will fulfill that which we desire. We will always prioritize the things that we have passion about and we will always make room for them and make them one of our top priorities. If we really want to do something, we'll find a way to do it. Can I have an amen? There's 24 hours in a day. There's 8,760 hours in a year. The American public spends as an average seven hours a day for 180 days a year in school. This means that 14% of their time is spent in school alone. The average person in America also spends four hours a day watching television. This means that 17% of their year is spent staring at a TV. The average time that Americans spend on the phone is four to, or five to six hours a day. This means 24% of their time was spent on the phone having screen time or talking to someone. The average American worker is now working 45 hours a week. That's the average. This means that 27% of their time is spent at work. The average American spends two hours a day eating. Why is everybody laughing at that? I'm, Burton, you're the, you're the farthest thing from wanting that needs to be laughing about that. This means that... Uh, <laughs> the, This means that <laughs> Lord have mercy. This, this we <laughs> Woo! I'm not laughing in the spirit, I'm laughing in the flesh, I'll tell you for sure. This means that we spend eight percent of our time consuming food. Some of us eat all day long. The average American sleeps seven hours a day, which means that 30% of our time is spent in sleeping. And the biggest one that is kind of out of culture and is a very conservative number, they say, that's because it's real high in some areas and low in others. It's according to where the statistics, but when they put the statistics together, they said that we spend 12% of our time a year watching or doing sports. The average Christian, non-Christians, were not included in the survey, spends less than two hours at church a week. This means that less than 1%, actually it's 0.5%, spend their time in church a year. 
They say that holy, dedicated Christians of America, those that love God, those that are sold out dream teamers, they only spend about five hours a week at church a week. This means that the deep, dedicated Christians of America only spend 2% of their time at church. We pay big bucks to occupy our beautiful buildings and spend millions on our facilities and yet we spend less than 1% of our time here. Our lives are so packed with so much stuff that we make God and church an afterthought. Amen? I love God, but... I love God, but... I will win, but win never comes. 80% of the people depend upon the church to teach their kids that they spend less than 1% of their time at. Think about that. 80% of the people depend on the church to teach their kids that the kids only spend less than 1% of their time at. No wonder that our kids don't know anything about God within America. That's why the Paul said, redeeming our time because the days are evil. We have to learn how to redeem our time and focus on the work of the kingdom that is at hand. Like Margaret Green said, we have to be the day workers and let God use us up. We have to make God and his kingdom our top priority and make sure nothing replaces that. The real question is, do we want to enter the kingdom where God reigns or do we prefer to follow our own kingdom and our own agenda? Notice that the servants of the house went and told the master, you know, we went out and tried to get all these people that were bidding to come, but we couldn't get any. Look at the response of what the scripture says. It says it made him mad and angry. And then he said, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, bringing hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. The servants went out and done as the master had said. And when they came back, they said, Lord, it is done. And we've done what you have commanded us, and yet there is still room. By the preparation of that room, how big it was, this speaks of how big of a crowd that was expected by God the Father from those that were chosen and invited. And yet he went out and got many, many more, even beyond the chosen, and the room was still not full. The chosen speaks of Israel, but Israel forsook their opportunity, so he went out and got a bunch of mixed up, twisted, sick, ill, warped, broken, lame people. Who were they? They were the Gentiles. They were you and I. You are who he's talking about right here. He went out and said, I'll leave the Jewish nation behind. I'll put blinders on their eyes. I will raise up another people because they refused my opportunity. And he reached out and we are recipients of the grace of God. But even then, there was still room. And look what he says in verse 23. Go out in the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Now what happens? Because you got saved by the grace of God. Israel was rejected and shoved aside. The Gentile church was birthed. And he said, now that you've been recipients, go ye. The command that he gave to Israel is now given to the Gentile church. It shifted off of them upon us. The very thing that he wanted to do by making Israel the priest of the world that set them at the crossroads of the world to perpetuate the gospel to everybody. They refused it. They rejected it. So he cut off the natural branch 
and he grafted in an unnatural branch, the Gentiles. He saved us and washed us by grace and filled us with his Holy Spirit. Then took the command that was upon Israel and placed it upon us. God help us. The truth of the matter is God doesn't want anybody to be lost. He's wishing that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. However, the master looks at his servants and said to them in verse 24, listen to this. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. That's a scary thought. I've given them that assignment, they rejected it. I've given them the invitation, they rejected it. And as a result of their rejection, the old proud Pharisee said, someday because I'm a Pharisee, I'll sit in the kingdom and sit by your side and I'll have authority and I'll have a position and I'll eat bread with you. Jesus said, I want you to know not one of you that has heard this will eat at my supper. Not one of you are gonna be there. When I call my church out and I have a marriage supper of the Lamb and there's gonna be a great banquet, not one of those people are gonna taste of that banquet. Can you imagine how God must have felt when he planned such a great feast based on the number of guests that he invited and when the RSVPs came in, there was none that responded positive. And yet God gives us that same invitation right here today. He's given us RSVPs. How many's gonna come to the party? How many's gonna be faithful? Come on. He went to great length to prepare, to invite and to bless, but none took him up on it. A thought came to me about our mandate and our mission and our assignment from God as a church. We are to not only make sure that we're a part of the feast, a part of the wedding, but we are to go out in the highways, the byways, among the hedges and compel people to come in to the kingdom of God. That's our job. And when I look at what God has established and built and designed and constructed and placed right here on 1400 Herschel Best Boulevard, I wonder, are we gonna meet the expectations of his desire and feel to capacity and bring in the harvest as he has desired. Are we gonna meet God's desire for this city as a body? We are to operate in the spirit, and be kingdom minded, build the kingdom, that's our assignment. We have the invitation to join up with him. Folks, I hear God saying to this congregation, I hear it, all things are now ready. It's harvest time. But where's our priorities? Are we a part of the kingdom where God reigns? Or are we gonna be like Israel who had lost opportunity by rejecting his call? The mill's ready, God's ready, but the question is, are we ready? God is ready to pour out his spirit here. And I wanna tell you, God's ready to pour out here uh, the spirit of the Lord to meet our mandate that is upon us. Uh, and we have to be prepared to reach it. And we've been preparing for 36 years, folks, and it's ripe. The time is ripe, the harvest is ready, but are we ready? Are we gonna be like Israel or like Margaret Gaines? Are we gonna squander our opportunity? Or are we gonna say like Isaiah the prophets, hear my Lord, send me. Are we gonna hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, 23, when it's all settled and done? Well done, good and faithful servant of palace of praise. I've been faithful over a few things. I'm gonna make you ruler over a many. Enter into the joys of the Lord today. Or are we gonna hear what verse 24 said? For I say to you that none of those men which were been shall taste of my supper. Are we going to be about our father's business or are we gonna be about our business? 
Are we going to be a part of the kingdom? Are we going to pursue our own kingdom? The real question is, are we going to pursue that which is eternal, carnal, temporal, earthly, or worldly? Or are we going to pursue that which is spiritual, eternally, eternal, or godly? The real question is this. Are we going to be a Pharisee or are we going to be the real deal? Come on, somebody. My heart bleeds for the harvest right now. The mandate and the call is upon us. We have preached revival for years. We've had our prayer meetings, our prayer walks. We've done walks around the city. We've involved ourselves in the city. We do everything that we got. Now the body's got to engage themselves as an evangelist, as a Christian, and begin to share their faith to tell their story to a lost and dying world. And when we do, God says, I'm going to bless you with abundance. I'm going to pour my spirit upon you. I'm going to bless you greatly. And not only are we going to be blessed here in the now, but we're going to have setting up our rewards in heaven. I want you to stand with me all over the building, please. <clears throat> we're on this little series on evangelism. I've not taught on it in several years. But everyone closing their eyes and bowing their head for a moment. There may be someone here, you're, you're not saved. I want to be a Margaret Gaines to you today and say God loves you. No matter how you've been hurt, no matter how you've been exploited, no matter what things you have done, no matter what you may have, uh, have done as an individual in the area of sinning or how bad things may be in your life, no matter what kind of addictions you have, no matter where, where you come from, no matter what background you have, God's planted you at the right place here today because we don't put our nose and snarl at you because we've walked in your shoes. We know where you've been because we've all been there ourselves. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would still be there. But the same grace that has saved us, we're offering to you today. We're one of those services bidding you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time right here, but if you're unsaved today, if you want to be born again, I just want you to just come up here and let me pray for you. Others will pray with you. And if you don't want to go alone, look at your neighbor beside you. Those are somebody you may know and say, will you walk with me? I really want to give my life to Jesus Christ today. Are you here this morning that would like to be saved? Would you just step out and make your way? I want to give you the first opportunity before I go to the next level. Is there anyone else that would like to come? Right now, there's somebody that is just really under conviction. Pray for them, saints. Because this is what this whole service is about, is that one individual that may not know Jesus as the Lord and Savior. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Is there another one? I need some people to help pray right up here, please, some of you women. Is there anybody else this morning? Hallelujah. All of heaven rejoices over one sinner that brings, that repents of their sin and comes into the kingdom of God. Is there anyone else here today that say, I need to be saved? I need to give my life to the Lord. And as we continue on in the service, you can come at any given time and we'll be here. Now, the question I ask for the church is this. If the revival happens that I believe that God wants to happen, things will really change in the course of our church. There'll be things happen that'll disrupt the services. There'll be things that'll happen that'll scar the interior of the church. 
there'll be things that'll happen on the grounds of the church. I don't want us to get so focused on image and protocol and system and arrangement that we forget the presence of the house and if the presence is in the house, he's gonna draw the lame, the blind, the halt, the sick. And when they come in, we're gonna love them unconditionally. We're gonna wrap our big arms around them. We're gonna weep with those that weep. We're gonna laugh with those that laugh. We're gonna hurt with those that hurt. We're gonna help those that are weak. And we're gonna show them the grace of God and the love of God. We're gonna give them everything that we know scripturally, but more importantly, we're gonna give them everything that we know, don't know, and that is love itself that is stronger than anything that we can offer them is the love of God. And this morning, if you're dedicated to say, okay, I'm ready to take on the perspective of God, can you imagine the Pharisee sitting there and the minute he healed on the Sabbath, how angry they got? They were so stooped in their religious piety that they couldn't understand the wonderful grace of God. Sometimes churches get that way. They get cliquish. They get protective of their domain. They come in and they think they've arrived and this is the way everybody shall be. And just like the Pharisees, we'll only reach out to people that are like us because we're too uncomfortable with those that are different from us. So we build a church on our personality instead of building it upon kingdom principles. And we end up having a social club instead of a church. We try to build a church where everybody gets along. Well, honey, how many's got family? Raise your hand. Do you always get along with your family? Come on, let's be real in this thing. I got family that I'd rather hang around some of my friends and my family. Can I have an amen? And what I'm trying to convey to you here today is that God wants to come down in this service right here and begin to deal with our self-righteous attitudes, our arrogance, our hypocrisies. Come on. Our faulty thinking. And he wants to deal with us to where we take on the very perspective and the heartbeat of God and the very way God views the world is the way that God wants the church to view the world. Are you ready for that? If you're ready for it, get surprised at what he might show you. I'm gonna ask you just for a few minutes if everybody that was got a desire to have the heartbeat of God and the perspective of God to walk this way. As a, as a body. Somehow when I was out in my sin, I felt like God done this for me. I got a vivid imagination, but it's how I felt. I was mischievous. I done a lot of things. I got skeletons in my closet that I'm not proud about at all. And every time somebody says, I seen one of your old friends over at Dudley go, ooh. 
I hope he don't rattle out too much stuff of our childhood. And somehow, we Dudley boys, when we went to the Dexter School, was from Dudley. We were the lessers. Anybody know what that feels like? We from was that no good town of Dudley. It kind of had the stigma of Nazareth. Nothing good come out of Dudley. It was a rough town. It was kind of a weird town, an odd town, and things went on over there that was unbelievable. And when you were from Dudley, you had a stigma about you when you went to Dexter. And you had to try to always live that down. And you always had to try to prove yourself of who you were. And somehow in all of that chaotic junk, somehow I think even in when I was bad, when I was no good, and everybody was wanting to cut us down, I felt like sometimes God would stand up and say, he may be a sinner, but he's still my creation. Leave your paws off of that man. And sometimes we look out at that world and we see everything we're doing and we want to gripe. How can they get caught up in it? How do they do that? How do they? And we just want to blister their hide and we want to downcast them and we want to, we want to say, man, who would ever do this and who would ever do that? And how do they get to that point? And blah, 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 blah. And all along, sometimes I think God is so disgusted because all we can see is what they're doing and we can't see who they are. Amen? And every time we do that, we ought to stop and say, whoa! I was there one time. I was in the gutter one time. I was no good one time. But God seen something in me and he sent Jesus and die for me. And everybody says he sent the pearl of great price. That's not true. Jesus was not the pearl of great price. He views us as the pearl of great price that was lost in a field. But he sent a son to dig us up and make us become to the place of our potential. And I'm asking you today, to pray for a burden of the harvest like never before and give you the courage. You say, we'll deal with more stuff next week, hopefully. But pastor, I don't know the scripture. Just tell them your story. You're gonna hear me say it over. Tell them your story. You don't have to make up nothing if they ask you questions. I don't know, we'll find out. But all I know, I was lost, but I am saved. Can I have an amen? Would you pray with me right now, a prayer of committal to the heart. Say, God, give me your perspective. God, give me your heart. Let me see through the eyes the way you see the harvest. I pray, God, right now in the mighty name of Jesus Christ that you would really begin to penetrate, God, us in this place. We always want Pentecostal services where we lay hands on people and things happen. But, God, I'm asking for transformation of vision. I'm asking for transformation of heart. I'm asking for your heart to become our heart, your perspective to become our perspective. Let us see the harvest for what it is, how important it is. God, it's rotting on the vine. It's ripe. We need labors in the field. And I ask you right now in the name of Jesus, God, let us not make excuses of why not to be at that wedding supper. And for heaven's sake, help us to go out and get the lame, the halt, the blind, the warped, and bring them in so that they might be saved. Give us your heart, God. Help us forgive us of our lack, our slack, 
Forgive us that we're not doing our job. Don't let us abort the mission. Oh, God, help us to be a part of that great supper and let us bring in our sheaves with us rejoicing. I pray in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. God bless you. Love on two or three people and encourage them to share their faith in Jesus' name.